I'm Dr. Mitch Harlan, and welcome to the Truth Talks podcast. Today's episode is with Chris Hickey. Chris, how are you? I'm doing great. Excited to be here. Fantastic. I got to tell you something. So I end up getting this story uh, from producer Chad, and I read some background information. You came down, we did our pre-interview, and now I'm blown away. Uh, the story is even way bigger than I ever thought it was. So I want to kind of open this as a circle of life. This is one of those stories that I actually wasn't even prepared for uh, from the angle that that we did in the pre-interview. So I want to start. I want to just start exactly like we did earlier. Okay. Tell your story from top to bottom. It's an interesting one. Uh, I grew up in Kansas City, so I was a family of uh, four boys uh, from youngest to oldest. Uh, my brothers and I went five years apart. And so I think to myself, oh my God, how did my mom handle that? You know, how she's not a crack addict or something, but uh, she was a uh, nurse. She taught nursing school. Uh, my father was a uh, clinical psychologist. He dealt with uh, drug and alcohol dependency issues, uh, had for-profit methadone clinics in Oklahoma, Kansas City, and some other places. And we grew up the all-American, white-collar Catholic family. You know, the good kids expected to produce, um, expected to be good in sports. And uh, we lived that tale for, for a while. And then in about 1990, 1991, that all fell apart. Um, we found out that my dad had never graduated college and it was all pretty much uh, a fraud. And so that hit me hard because my dad was really, really strict with us. You didn't lie, you brought home good grades, it, you worked and uh, honesty was his big thing. So when you find out the template for the man that is your father is bullshit, man, you become really angry, really, really angry. Well, how, how did the other siblings do with that? Um, we all struggled with it. My dad was abusive. Um, he was physically abusive and he was emotionally abusive. And so, uh, yeah, we were pretty pissed off. Was that his cover up? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I tell people all the time, looking back, my dad taught me some amazing lessons inadvertently. And so I have not had a relationship with him uh, since I was about 18, 19. When I got hired in law enforcement in Denver, I tried to reconnect with him for about six months and I realized things had not changed. And so uh, I think that started the, the kind of cauldron of anger inside of my soul. And uh, um, yeah, it, it, it tore our family up. It's a quite interesting story. That's the part I wasn't prepared for. And this whole circle of life, how your life has circled back around. There's a lot of, there's a lot of depth in your story. A lot of things that I imagine that some of those stories that you did learn probably have, have made and helped you pull through to where we're at now. Absolutely. Uh, some of the most painful times have been the best, you know, I, I, sounds weird, but I, I, I don't regret them happening um, because it's, it's turned me into the, the man I am today. Uh, I would certainly wouldn't want to go back to some of those. Well, this story gets insanely incredible. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. I was not prepared. Let's get into the law enforcement. Sure. So I, uh, I grew up a white collar family. And so I, I, in high school, I was the entrepreneur. I wanted to, I wanted to have the money. You know, my dad had the fancy cars. We had the big house and private planes and traveled and, and blah, blah, blah. And so the Hickey boys, there was, there was, uh, four of us. And so, you know, you didn't mess with one cause if you mess with one, they were all coming. And I, my brother, um, my brother wrestled for the Canadian national team. Um, my brother, Rob was a, um, a, you know, state champion wrestler and, I was nothing. I just did not have the self-confidence in it. I was not good in school. I had learning disabilities. And so when I was a kid, I got stopped by a police officer for riding a moped without a license and he busted me. So my parents are out of town. I'm not going to say anything to them. 
you know, like, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll figure my way out of this one. Well, he writes me a ticket, so I know I'm screwed. And so, well, actually, he writes my buddy Mark Flint a ticket because he caught us switching drivers. And so Mark's spending the night at my house, and, and so Officer Thompson was his name. Uh, he makes us push it home, comes back the next day, and tells us, hey, we're going to let you off this ticket. And uh, uh, I'm like, oh, man, this is awesome. Well, unbeknownst to me, when we brought the moped home, we pushed it in the garage, and my dad had a motorcycle for sale that was in the garage and had a for sale sign on it. And Officer Thompson saw that for sale sign and jotted down the number. So about a week, week and a half later, I walk into the house, and my dad just knocks the crap out of me. Man, I'm like, what? And he's like, I told you not to take that moped out. You got stopped by the cops. I'm like, what the heck? Well, that Officer Thompson guy ended up contacting my dad about that motorcycle and bought it. <laughs> that started a relationship that lasted for years. He would stop by my house, and he, he was a car fanatic. I was a car fanatic, and we just had amazing conversations. But I didn't believe, because of my learning disabilities and my, my not, not inability to athletics, but I just didn't believe I had what it took uh, to be in athletics. I was kind of a small, scrawny kid. Because I'm, I'm again the temple that I'm using are my brothers, um, and I just didn't think I I had what it took. So I started down the entrepreneurial path in college, and it was a semester shy of uh, of uh, me finishing a degree in entrepreneurship that I was just like I really want to do this law enforcement thing, and so I dropped out of the program, and uh, went back to school for uh, criminology and psychology and sociology, and I did an internship with the Topeka Police Department in Topeka, Kansas. And man, I was hooked. I was hooked big time. And so I had some student loans at that time and I needed to get them paid. And so the federal government had a program going where if you went to repressed areas of the country, you, uh, they'd pay your loans if you stayed for five years. So I applied all over the place and I got hired in Dodge City, Kansas, the Wild West. It's a nice place. Holy shit. It's man. one of the nicest places yeah. on the planet. I had no idea what I was walking into. And you know, I'm a, I'm a, a uh, white collar kid that grew up in the nice neighborhoods. And I remember, um, it, it sounds so like snobbish, but I had never even been in a trailer park before, Yeah, you know? And, and then I'm coming to a city where we had a hard time even driving our vehicles in the trailer parks because they were so bad. So when we you know, got calls, we'd have to park in the street and walk into these things. And it was just eye-opening for me. And the, at the first th six months, I was just like, what in the hell am I doing here? And the violence was overwhelming. Which then is when... Um, this story I was unprepared for takes a turn. Yeah. So I worked on a, a gang task force. We, um, you know, focused on the gangs and the drugs and, and Dodge City. Uh, Dodge City had a huge transient population because of the meatpacking plants between Liberal, Garden City, and Dodge City. And, and there, people don't realize that there, there's a huge drug problem out there, but there was a huge gang problem out there. And so I, uh, I had an incident with a young man that we had dealt with uh, before um, on a call of a uh, basically a hit and run accident. And so I had contacted his parents and they, they said, hey, he's not home. He's uh, he's out, but we're losing him to these gangs. He wants to get in the gangs. So I asked them to to call me when he got home and uh, they did. And so I entered the house with their permission without having to knock because I knew he was going to run. And I sat down and had a discussion with him. And I told him, like, look, you know, these gangs aren't the answer. They're a temporary fix to a, to a problem. But the kid had no hope. I mean, he just did not see any hope for himself. He had just graduated college, he was, or excuse me, high school, but he was illegal. Legal aliens brought there when he was young. And, you know, he looked at me and he's like, yeah, it's easy for you to say, Officer Hickey. You know, you're not here illegally. You have papers, you have documents. And I was like, wow, like, it's a, a perspective change. You know, he's like, look at him going, okay. And so I just told him, you know, you've got to do something different with your life. And then uh, three days later, I, I shot him. 
uh, in a high-speed pursuit, and uh, he ended up dying. Which is the thing that I, I was unprepared for in this conversation. Yeah. I want to know one thing, maybe a couple things. You know, growing up the way you did, I have this sense of feeling that you're really trying to help this kid. I was, yeah. And, and you hear that a lot in law enforcement. Like, I, I truly want to help these people. And I think we all start out that way. We become jaded at, towards the end of our careers. But I, I, I did. I mean, he was a, people just get so awestruck when I was like, he's a good kid. He's a good kid that was, you know, pointing guns at you. <laughs> so, yeah. Just shot and killed a, a kid beforehand, which is what started this whole ordeal with me even encountering him. Um, on, a, on a gang initiation type thing. So yeah, it, it's hard to understand that, but but then I look at where he's at in his life and what he saw his future as, and you have these gangs promising everything, and you're like, well, I guess it doesn't really seem like that bad of a deal. It's a perspective. Absolutely. But that really crashed your life. Yeah, big time. Because you, you feel like, what could I have done different? And I, I remember saying to him, you know, screaming at him, Richard, drop that effing gun. And he, he was pointing his, his firearm at my partner. And, and when I said that, he had that look in his eye, kind of like, you know, fucking idiot, really? And he, he turned towards me. And, and then at that point, I mean, he, he made my decision for me. And it was odd because that shooting did not affect me until about a year later when I was with Broomfield. And then it just crashed me, just crashed me. And I never talked to anybody about it. I never said a word to my, I was uh, dating, uh, who later became my wife at the time, never spoke to her about it. I thought, I've got this. And in fact, I remember looking at Glenn, my partner in that shooting, they were sending us to Wichita, Kansas, talk to the psychologist. And I remember saying to him, dude, all we do is look at the psychologist, tell them we're good. He made the decision for us. We believe in God and let's get back to work. I was back to work less than a week and a half later. It's unheard of now. Yeah. Yeah. We actually did a uh, podcast with a police officer shooting and, but it was someone he didn't know. Uh, someone in the, had just made contact with then. I assume that there was probably some sort of emotional connection to this guy. There was. Um, and the, the fact that I did it in front of his parents hurts. You know, and so every uh, February 28th rolls around and it, yeah, it hurts because he would have been 38 uh, now, I think. You know, it just, ugh. Tears me up, 38, 39. Which, uh, which I'm sure is explainable. One of the things that I think we'll just throw in here right now, as we were talking to uh, the other police officer's name's Pat Long, you know, he, he described how, you know, he didn't really know how much of support he needed, psychological support he needed after that. And uh, would you concur that you need a lot? Yeah, and, and, and it, it's changed now. We have critical incident teams and we have a victim of advocates and we didn't have that back in 98. And so, Really, you, you pinned this badge on and became Billy Badass every day. And you went out there and did your job. And then you came back and you fist bumped all the guys at the police department, the gals, and, and, and you didn't talk about it. Uh, and so, you know, you've heard the, the old adage, carrying your burden around, carrying your backpack. And you just keep shoving this crap in your backpack. And it finally gets to the one day where you've got so much stuff you're carrying around. Your, your knees are buckling. You cannot do it anymore. It becomes physically exhausting. It becomes emotionally exhausting. And it buries you. You know, we're, we're huge supporters of, of, uh, of the thin blue line, if you will, mm -hmm. police officers. We've, uh, uh, producer Chad uh, was a police officer, and that's, that's part of the deal. We also had a guest on, Vinny Montez, and he uh, is a big comedian now, and he uses comedy a lot to um, kind of lessen some of those burdens for people. And 
Uh, I'm glad you, I'm glad that, that that's something that we've talked about here, because again, we're always here to help somebody in mm -hmm. that situation. So I'm glad. So that's just part of this story. Yeah, it's part of the story. So I, uh, uh, I realized that I needed to get out of Western Kansas. Um, it was, uh, it was just so much violence. I mean, the last six months I was there, I think we dealt with seven homicides. Um, and I had several, um, incidents where I had shown up on calls for domestic violence calls. And um, ironically, the same guy I got in the shooting with, he and I show up on a call for a domestic violence issue. Neighbors are like, look, this guy's screaming, yelling. We get there, we can't find him. Hour and a half later, we come back to the same place. He had gunned her down on her front doorstep. And you know, it, it made me feel about that big, like I didn't do my job again. And that, that stuff after a while, you're just like, as, as a rookie cop, you're like, well, wow, this is fun. This, this, all this action. But after a while, it just starts to wear on you. And so I was like, I need to get out of here. And so I started applying in Colorado. I got hired down in El Paso County for the sheriff's office down there. And I just didn't enjoy it down there. So I went back to Kansas. I was there for uh, a year and a half. That's when I actually got into the shooting was uh, on that second trip. And then I'm like, all right, it's time to go. So um, I had got hired up in Vail. And so a friend of mine worked for Vail and he's like, I'm leaving Vail. I'm like, what do you mean you're leaving Vail? I'm, I'm coming. And he's like, no, I'm going to this place, Broomfield. They're going to become their own city and county. And so I applied with them and ended up getting hired and uh, um, moved up here. Uh, I remember I started April 1st. I got married. Um, I got married at like April 29th was my, like three weeks later. Um, and then started my career here. And uh Really wanted to get into the um, accident investigation in the motorcycle unit, you know. Of which you did. Yeah. I wanted to be like Ponch, Ponch and John, you know. <laughs> you look more like John. Than yeah, Ponch. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I tan well, though. Uh, and so I did. I, got, I ended up getting into that. But, but you know, even that, that message kept getting sent to me that you're not enough, you're not enough. Because it took me like two or three times to, to make that unit. And you, you just touched on something about the officer who went into comedy. That was me. That was how I was covering up all of this, this pain in my life was through comedy. I was the guy that, you know, walk into a room, make everybody laugh. Uh, and I figured, hey, if people are laughing, they're going to like me. So that became uh, part of my downfall because people just didn't take me seriously. I produced when I was out on the street. Um, I, I'm very serious about my professional I'm on the street. But once I walked through the doors in the police department, I like to screw around. And that did not serve me well with, with the administration. And so I, I kept applying to the specialized unit, uh, special operations. You work independent. You know, our schedules were flexible. We there were some days I didn't even came into briefing. I started from my house and ended from my house. And so it, it took me two or three times to get into that unit. And, and then once I did, I excelled. I excelled big time. Uh, I ended up uh, going through the motor school, later became an instructor for Harley Davidson and Northwestern University teaching the two week advanced school. Uh, or two-week operator school, and then they have a three-week advanced school and a and a um, instructor school, and I was doing those and loving it. I got into the accident investigation, critical accident investigation. So I worked myself up from a level one to level four, which to me was huge because this is a kid that had learning disabilities. I, I was I, I hated school. It wasn't until probably my junior high school where things really clicked for me, and so I. Um, I, I was excelling. I mean, I was I was doing what I, I thought I needed to do. I was being respected. I'm living in this big house and got exotic cars. We're making tons of money, but I was fucking miserable. I was miserable because you were also an entrepreneur. I was an entrepreneur. I had a I've had a carpet cleaning uh, flood restoration business that I started back in '91 to help pay for school. 
I didn't plan on keeping that. That was a way uh, to to pay for school. But then I realized like, man, this is kind of good money for my my hobbies. And so I was able to build a house up in, up in the mountains that I still have. And to the outside world, anybody looking in thinks, wow, that guy's successful. Because that's what, what is, what's the, what's the, the, what does society paint as a successful man? What does the media tell us? Well, it's just, you know, money and a big house and a, a, a good looking wife, some kids, fancy cars, vacations. And it's such a wrong template. Do you think you're paralleling your dad at this point, though? I am, because what I did not realize was subconsciously it was a big F you to him because, you know, when I, when I when I bought the car, it was screw you. I bought it. I didn't have to screw anybody out of it. Uh, my dad took advantage of people uh, in the business world too, and so yeah, it it, it wasn't probably till about four years ago that I realized five years ago that that's what I had been doing. Okay, don't jump ahead of me too far. We still got part two of this. I'm dance. slowing this down. We got to start part two of this story. So everything's coming together when you move to Broomfield until it didn't. Until it didn't. Uh, July 3rd of 2008, I was involved in a commercial motor vehicle accident on my motorcycle with a semi. And uh, that ultimately ended my career and started uh, my wake-up call. And uh, part of that wake-up call was that night in the hospital after I had uh, had been uh, transported there, I realized my marriage was over with. It's that time where you feel like your wife and, and you should come together and you're holding hands and she's embracing it. She just didn't give a shit. Um, and I was like, wow. And I, I, uh, the surgery started and I, I went through occupational therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy. I'd broken my back. I, I mean, I, I broke, initially they thought it was just a hand and, a, uh, my tibias. I'd broken my tibias in half. Uh, it turned out I had broke my back. I had a traumatic brain injury that we didn't realize till about two weeks later. I'd lost all the hearing in my right ear. Um, I, I um, had to have uh, all the teeth on my right side were smashed. Um, I've had five surgeries on my elbow, uh, ripped a rotator's cuff. And so it was it was probably the lowest point in my life until my marriage ended um, because you feel helpless. And so I I could not do anything. Did you have any ownership in that? Um, in which part of it? The the marriage was that oh. still part of was that still part of your characteristics that you were still carrying? Yeah, I didn't have ownership at the time. She was a bitch and yeah. had an affair and left. I look back now and I've told my kids, I don't blame your mom for leaving. I gave her nothing to stay for. Um, my ex and I get along great. I still sit at a you know I can sit at a table and have a meal with the guy she had the affair on me with. Um, you know it, it's it, it, it's part of like God waking me up and making me look at my own crap and saying hey. You know, what are you going to do with this? We're going to get to that. We're going to get to where you come up with that realization. So this is a, this is a career ender, mm-hmm. the, the accident. It's an identity stripper. An identity stripper. Yeah. But it still got worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when they told me that uh, I was losing my job, I was really pissed off. Um, I was one of these guys that I would have a surgery on Monday, and on Wednesday I'd be back at the police department doing what, what, you know, light duty, whatever I could do. And so I, uh, I went through my therapy. I went through my, my surgeries and I didn't know what I was going to do. I I still had my, uh, carpet cleaning business and flood restoration. So my, my daughter was young at the time. So when I got my accident, I have to think here, I had one daughter that was six and I think the other one was two. Yeah. So they're pretty young. 
And so my daughter's like, well, dad, you can just be a rug sucker. Keep being a rug sucker. The problem with that is, man, like you're- Where identity. did your daughter come up with yeah, the term she, rug sucker? Yeah, residential That had to come sucker. from dad. No, it didn't. I think it came from the guys at the police department. Oh, okay. Because I used to catch crap all the time because I was always working. And you, you touched on it earlier. I was chasing that dollar. Yeah. My value was how much money I had in the bank and how fast the cars were in the garage. And so when when the 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 surgery happened and I feel like, you know, okay, my wife doesn't love me, she ends up having an affair. And she has that affair and I I, I use the kind of like, you know, the, the the nuclear bomb button, flip the cover and hit the red button. The red button on my life got hit. It blew up. So all of that stuff that you identify with, the the I'm the police officer, it's gone. Uh, I've got this beautiful wife. She's gone. I've got this big house. It's gone. And I remember being curled up in a ball uh, February 15th of 2015 in a bed alone in this massive house going, get up. You have got to do something. You can sit here and play the victim role. You can wallow in this. Uh, you're going to die. You're, you're going to drown yourself in, in misery. And, and that was the point. <laughs> that was the point where I thought, I got this. Like, this is going to be good. Holy shit, it got far worse before it ever got better. Can I ask you a question here? Out of my own pure curiosity, if we had to rank those three things, the shooting, the accident, or losing it all, which affected you the most? Oh, it'd be tough. Huh? Um. Losing it all was the hardest, but it was the most productive. Because I think you've got to be leveled before you can lift yourself up. And th that's the time where, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, God walking us through the valleys and, and being through us with the dark times, if you look for them. Um, because when you're in the bottom of those valleys and, and, and it's dark, you just don't see any benefit or any reason to what's happening to you. It's later where you look back and you go, oh, shit. I get it. I'm so glad I walked that. Yeah, it had to happen. It had to happen. It almost had to happen. Yeah, the the the, the shooting I've forgiven myself on, I I, I it still it still gets to me, you know, um, just because that was somebody's son, and so my pain lies with the parents. Ultimately, he made the decision. Uh, my motorcycle accident, look, it was it, it happened, um, and uh, ultimately, I, I can look now and say, my God, am I glad I'm out of law enforcement with today's environment like what a blessing from god that i was removed from that you know at the time i didn't see that so this was this is the reason that i kind of asked this because the first two were out of your control the third one being curled up on that day some of that was your fault mm -hmm. is that the most dramatic for you yeah is yeah. that rock bottom for you yeah i just decided at that point like i wanted to be happy because really even when i was married i wasn't happy there was no intimacy with my wife uh, I didn't want to be at home. And so my escape was get off work, jump on a carpet cleaning van and, you know, go knock out some jobs and make some extra money and then go buy shit to make yourself happy. Well, when the red button explodes, you lose it all. You're going, what do I have left? Because I wasn't happy with myself. Give me that moment where you decide you're changing it all. It was literally that that day, February 15th, when I'm just like, I have got to get out of bed and do something. And so I was uh, morbidly obese. I'm on a wheelie cart and I have a friend of mine who was a, a city attorney for Denver had talked about this gym that was over in Broomfield. And I hauled myself out into my diesel pickup and I just drove to it. I'm like, I need help. And they're like, when can you start? And I'm like, right now. And they're like, when did you have your surgery? I was like, yesterday. 
And they said, are you sure? And I was like, look, there's people coming back from the war, missing arms and legs. Surely you guys can do something with me. I dropped 52 pounds in like 11 months and uh, uh, just got ripped up, ended up getting into fitness modeling and really just kind of picking myself up. Uh, started dating a gal, which uh, again was a lesson at the time, thought it was the most amazing thing ever. Um, it was not an amazing thing ever. It uh, That one leveled me. And that is really when I, I started thinking like, I'm trying to do this on my own. I, I, I've got to do something different. And I, I, uh, I'm a scuba diver. And so my buddy's on a dive shop over in Broomfield and he asked me to go on a dive trip with him. And it was for uh, a church here in, in Denver. And I went on it and I'm looking at these people. Of course, I'd gone, you know, all boys Catholic high school. And so I call myself recovering Catholic. I hated religion. And it was on that trip where I met the pastor. And he's like, you ought to come to church. And I'm like, screw that. I hate religion. He's like, yeah, me too. I'm like, how do you hate religion? You're a pastor. He's like, because you've had a bunch of bad religion shoved down your throat. And I walked into the doors of that place and life changing for me. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because a lot of our podcasts end up being faith-based. Mm -hmm. And I know some people, they, they start getting scared about that. But I knew at the end of there, there was going to be something mm -hmm. about God. It, it seems like that rock bottom and, and there's, a, there's a theme and there's a there's a certain part of me that's a scientist, right? And and that scientist says, hey, let's just run things by numbers. And one of the things that I often hear with stories like this where, you know, certain people's leveling is very different, mm -hmm. right? You've been leveled more than a few times. And I, I love the theme where you go on this random dive trip. Was it really random? Or was that no, God saying, I think I'm putting was, your ass on this boat? And I think that's exactly what happened. Because here's the thing. Through this entire time, I was no longer making deposits of, of, of financial gain in the bank. I was depositing anger. I was depositing anger and rage, and I was pissed off. And it was like, you know, why did my dad have to be like that? Why did my wife have to leave you? Why? It's because I was an asshole. And, and at some point, you just get tired of being an asshole, you know? And, and so when you go to work every day and you tell people where they're going to sit, where they're going to stand and what they're going to do, and then you're expected to come home and flip a light switch off and all that's going to stop. No, it doesn't. It doesn't stop at all. And so I, I literally pushed my wife away from me. My kids hated me. And so I'm laying there in that bed on February 15th going, what do I have left? I've got to make a change in my life. And so I did mine through physical fitness and, and working out and just diving into to God and getting some incredibly powerful men into my life. I went through a thing called the Crucible Project was based out of uh, Chicago and holy shit that opened up. Like I had never, never experienced vulnerability like that from other men and listening to their stories because really, you know, we can sit here and talk about my story and it's my story. And I think, okay, well, it's, it's not that powerful because it's my story. Uh, but then you, tell other people and you see their jaws on the table and they're like, holy crap. And so ultimately with my story, I was able to stand up in front of, you know, the church. I think I spoke in front of 30, 35,000 people to tell my story. And that's when I realized there was power in it because I had so many people reaching out to me saying, can I talk to you? Why the hell you think you're on Truth Talks? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll tell you, I, I struggle with this one because I don't, I, I, I think I'm past the point of telling my story and, and more to the point of, I know my story plays into it, but it's more of what I've done with my story. And, 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 and we, we all have the story, but I paint the outcome. I mean, we're all, we're all given a blank cam canvas in life and, and we paint whatever we want to paint on. 
But there, there, there is a point in your life where you stop and you don't like the picture and you're like, you know what, I'm going to paint over that and start over. And that's what I feel like God did to me. He gave me a different canvas or gave me the tools to paint a different picture. I always say you get to write the final chapter. Absolutely. You get to write it. So a couple of things that I'm going to ask you. These are hard questions because okay. we do this for everybody to learn something and to really, really value it. I meet you for the first time. Very physically fit guy. I would not have guessed you were obese yeah, I was. at any point. So we know that that was a major, major focus turnaround mm -hmm. for your life. I know there's road rash all over you. <laughs> and I ask you, what the hell is a road rash? You were mountain biking, took a, took a digger, right? Yeah. But I still got to ask this question. Are you broken? Is any of that stuff still broken? Yeah, I'm perfectly. Are you chasing anything down? Yeah, I'm perfectly broken. And I tell myself that every morning because at the point where I stop working on myself is the, 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 the part where I start sliding back into that, that depth and that pit. And so... Me putting my vulnerabilities out there and talking about them with men. And, and really, I mean, just um, about five months ago, I, I, had a, I, I have some amazingly powerful men in my life. And, and I, I look at the people that are in my, my life now, and I don't want to overplay the God portion of it, but holy shit, they're all powerfully strong Christian men who love their wives amazingly, serve their families well. And I have learned so much from them. But I had to sit down even as short as five months ago and be like, all right, give it to me. What's my problem? T tell me what it is I need to work on. And no surprise, I already knew what it was. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you, you have to hear it from other people to be like, okay, they see it. I already knew what I needed to work on. I already needed to know where I wanted to be. And, uh, you know, my, my pill for that is staying in the gym. Uh, I, I always say I had to have mental, physical, or spiritual. I have to have two of the three to keep me progressing in my path. And so whatever that path looks like or whatever success looks like, my definition of success is totally different now than it was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, I literally could care less. <laughs> I, I, I frequently say now I'm just ready to go sell everything and just go live life, you know, go out there and travel, do what I need to do. Which is an incredible transformation because I think at some point all of us men have some of that thing, some of that chasing the success, chasing the the materialistic types of stuff. I think I think we all suffer from that in mm -hmm. some way, shape, or form. But the fact that you are here telling this story, becoming extremely vulnerable. Well, actually, if you do you know who Jordan Peterson is? Mm -hmm. One of my favorite guys out there. And, and he says you you have to be an absolute monster, but then learn to control it. Yes. And I see that in you. And I I don't ever want you to stop telling your story. I mean, no. that's so powerful. And not only to men, but to the wives, the girlfriends or whatever, when they hear this as well, right? It gives a level of understanding that, you know what? I think a lot of this stuff did start with your dad. Yeah. You know, I, I had to get my ass kicked to learn gratitude. Bottom line, I had to be leveled. And so that has been my biggest thing now is, is you know, to find my best friend and partner and serve her well in life. I have not done that well though. I, I've literally had to stop and look and be like, how does she need to be loved? What do, what do I need to do to provide for her and not put myself first? And I've had to do it with my kids too. And, and so it, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole shift and the paradigm about the way you're thinking, because forever I've been about me. And so once you start tapping into the soul of the person that you love and figuring out, okay, what do I need to serve her? Oh my God, I've learned so much about myself. I want to ask you this question. Because this is the kind of stuff. Oh, God. Absolutely <laughs> so I want to ask you this question. What, what was the name of the pastor? Jim Bergen. 
Flatirons Church. Oh, from Flatirons. Okay. Yeah. All right. What what kind of boat were you on? Dive boat in the middle of uh, the ocean in Bonaire. You remember the color? White. Remember the smell? Yep. And the sound, the clinking tanks. You know, some people might call that being saved. Yeah. No, I, I truly. So here's what I tell people about that. I, it was three days on that boat with him, and uh, he didn't say a word to me. And so we were sitting having drinks one night as, a, as the, the group. And I'm, I'm seeing them do their devotional things on, on the afternoons. I'm not part of the group. I'm just a guy that filled a spot in an empty room for my buddies at the dive shop. Right? So I think. Yeah, so you thought. So I thought. So somebody said, hey, weren't you the officer that was involved with the accident with the commercial motor vehicle? And I'm like, yeah. And then somebody said, oh, my gosh, you should hear his story about a shooting. Well, Jim came up to me afterwards and said, hey, like, look, can I talk to you? And I was like, why? I think you're an asshole. <laughs> and he's like, what? I was like, I, I've been on the dive boat with you for three days. You haven't said a single word to me. And he's like, all right, fair. He's like, how about we buy drinks and I'll buy you a round of drinks. And if you still think I'm an asshole, don't, uh, you know, don't have to talk to me, but you got a free round of drinks. And I was like, okay, here's what's interesting about that. He had invited me to go to, to church. I was still married at the time. Uh, it took me about six months to get in there. I walked in there and I still remember it was during this I Am That Man series. And I thought he was talking to me. I, I thought he wrote that sermon about me. And so I walked out and he's in the lobby and he's like, hey, what'd you think? And I was like, you're an asshole. You know, <laughs> you're an asshole. And he, I was like, what? He's like, what? And I was like, do you write that about me? And he's like, yeah. And they, the Flatirons had that Me Too shirt before the Me Too yeah. movement. It means something completely different. Like, yeah. yeah, you think you're screwed up, Me Too. You have uh, pornography addictions, Me Too. Whatever it is, you're Me Too. I never stopped going. And so I literally look and think, okay, it wasn't that God gave me a smooth path to what was about to happen because my marriage blew up shortly after that. But he, he certainly threw down some gravel and gave me a direction to go to because when I hit rock bottom, that's literally all that I had. And, you know, it's so funny and, and, and sad at the same time, but how many people in life say they don't believe in God, but when tragedy hits, that's the first person they pray to. I've, I've seen it thousands of times. Never an atheist in a plane crash. Yep. I've seen it thousands of times. And so I, I used to think there was a weakness in a Christian man. And so for me to tell myself I'm a strong Christian man, I, I don't know what that means. I know I'm a Christian man learning every day about myself and about what God wants for me and about how God wants me to serve my partner and her kids and my kids. And I, I have certainly got it wrong. You're in trouble the day you stop trying. And, and again, because we have a certain audience, you know, I, I don't want to hammer this point to death, but what, what do you think would have happened had you not accepted that dive trip? I'd be dead like my older brother. Yeah, he took his life three years you ago. You believe that with all your fiber? Absolutely. In fact, I had had a discussion with my brother. My brother was two years older than I was. Um, I always felt like I was the older brother. And I was driving down from the Menard store up in Wyoming, picked up some log siding for my place in the mountains, and he called me. And he he was just at his wit's end. And he's like, I'm a terrible dad. I'm, I'm, I'm horrible. I'm, I'm this and that. Kevin had nothing to wake up to in life. And I kept telling him, Kevin, find something, you know, like reach for God. And he's like, oh, this is, this is, uh, God is bullshit. You know, if, if, if God was true, why would we have to go through the abuse we did when we were kids? Why would uh, we had had the challenges that we've had in life? I was like, Kevin, we still have free will and all this. You know, it's what you choose to do with that story that's going to define you and you're going to create your own story. I said, so, so whatever you're pissed off about right now, it's already over with, man. That was a second ago. So step in and start being a better father. He just didn't believe it. He didn't believe in himself. And so if I can say anything about my relationship with God is he, he's 
certainly shown me my value. He's shown me my value, though, through some of the worst challenges of my life where I'm just like, my God, like, seriously, are you here right now? You know, and then I don't think I don't think there's been a challenge in my life where I have not been able to look back and know exactly why it happened. Yeah. You know, I, I, I just can't. You know, I always my brain always just thinks oddly, I guess you might say. But um, if I was writing a book on this, which you should, by yeah. the way, <laughs> uh, if I was writing a book on this, the entire every single passage of your story begins the moment that you walked on that boat. Mm -hmm. Sure. You know, and I, I, and I, I always say what we conceal, we can't heal. And so if I can get a man to open up and start talking about his crap, his burden and start unpacking that, that burden that he's been carrying with him, he's going to see that there's, there's amazing beauty in life and there's amazing beauty in what he's been through. But it is again, that victim mentality. What, what are we going to do with it? You know, and there, there's some days where I wake up, um, you know, yesterday wiping out on the mountain bike. I do my mountain biking because, you know, I, I get out there in the morning and uh, it just gives me time to think. And, and I'm a physical person. I like to push myself. And when I wiped out on that, I was just kind of like, you got to be kidding me. You know, and for a second, it was the, oh, poor me. I'm 11 miles from anywhere, blah, blah, blah. And then I was just like, get back on the damn bike ride. You know, <laughs> shit will heal. And so every day I look, it's like a, it's a healing process, but I'm, I'm my own worst enemy in terms of causing additional damage. It's not the people of my life. It's how I respond to the people in my life. You know, I also am a firm believer in this, believe with hundred percent of my fiber, certain people are tapped, yep. tapped on the shoulder. Mm -hmm. And this feels very much like you were tapped on the shoulder. I think, I think there's more that you're supposed to do. Maybe this is again, God walking into truth talks, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah a book right? About these types of things. I mean, you encompass so many different people, so many different life's levelings, if you will. And you've kind of pulled this out. What What is your mission in life now? Save man. Save man. Glorify my family. Use the, use the fingerprint that God gave me to leave a mark on people. Because every one of us have a different fingerprint. What are we going to do with it? And I'm not saying my fingerprint's right. I mean, uh, Christina points out to me quite frequently things that I've screwed up or I'm just like, wow, here's the difference. I'm willing to listen now. You know, a funny story is just the other night we were going to the James Taylor concert and I had reservations for uh, dinner down at Maggiano's. And uh, got dinner reservations at 6.45 and we're supposed to be at the concert at eight. And so we go down there and I'm worked up, man. I'm amped up. Like my reservations are at 6.45. I need to get this concert and they're not seating me. And she literally just looked at me and she goes, Hey, calm down. And I, I hadn't said anything. And I was like, what? And she goes, you know, you're, you're, the energy that you're putting off right now, it, it, it's uncomfortable. It's like, it, it's uncomfortable people around you. And I just looked at her and I was like, wow. Like, I love this woman. Like, she totally knows me and gets me. 10 years ago, I would have blown up over that. Like, Bullshit. We have reservations at 645. And, you know, I just took a deep breath and I was like, she's so right. And, you know, 37 seconds later, Chris Hickey party too. Yeah, you're on you're on a different level than me because my wife tells me that stuff too. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm <laughs> yeah, well, we get it, right? Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Y'all should be amped up. I'm just yeah, yeah. yeah, but but it's it's that willingness to listen. It's yeah. willingness to really take the input from people around you and then reflect. Reflect back on it and be like, what the hell can I learn from this? Is there any part of your story we don't know now? 
Oh, there's a lot of it, but you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's all tertiary stuff. I mean, it, everything's had its impact. My brother taking his life had a, had a big impact on me. Um, but you know, just recently I, I have not had a strong family bond. And so just recently I decided like, I've got to reach out to these people and see value in them for what, what they have and have no expectations. So many times we go into relationships with an expectation. What's well, an expectation that we set and it's unfair because maybe that person is not able to meet that expectation, not because they don't want to, maybe they don't know it, or maybe they're incapable of doing it. And so I take relationships now with, 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 uh, a little more openness and, and just realize like, I don't know how I'm going to be able to impact somebody. I don't know how I'm going to be able to impact them good or bad, not even knowing that I did. So we have no idea how we're going to impact somebody, you know, jumping down the lady's throat at the Chick-fil-A drive-thru because you got your order wrong. Maybe in the moment that makes you feel great, but ultimately what, what are you doing to her and what are you doing for yourself? Yeah. Nothing. Oh my goodness. Chris Hickey, one of the best podcasts I've done. This uh, You've inspired me. Oh, and here's, it. and here's what I hope. I hope that months down the road, maybe a year down the road, two years down the road, whatever it is, you're having a podcast. And somebody says to you, you know what? I believe when you walked into that Truth Talks podcast, mm. and then you wrote your book, and then the book inspired millions of people. I think that might be part of your story, man. I don't sure. know. I'm not a big woo-woo kind of energy type of guy, but man, you got you, you were tapped. Sure. And I, I hope it goes from here. Thank you. I appreciate it. Chris Hickey, thank you so much for coming on Truth Talks Appreciate Podcast, it. man. What an incredible, incredible story, incredible man you are. I hope it, I hope I can help help somebody with it. You so, sure are. Hopefully right millions. Yeah, I hope so. Appreciate it.